Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. I appreciate all of you that are um, leaving reviews for the podcast. You can write a written review at at iTunes. Those are helpful. Or a number review. Or also those of you that are leaving reviews for my book at Amazon and Desert Book. That's very helpful. You can't donate to this podcast, but you can leave reviews on the platforms you're listening. Just helps our podcast and help more people engage in, and not necessarily for me, but for the guests that come forward and share their stories, those are the real heroes of the podcast. That's what makes the whole podcast work. And I have one of those good men in my home right now, uh, my friend Kendall Harwood. Welcome to the podcast, Kendall. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Will you spell your first name and your last name for our listeners so they can just visualize it? Yeah. So it's my first name is Kendall, K-E-N-D-A-L-L, so with two L's. And then Harwood is H-A-R. W-A-R-D. And I would guess people mispronounce Harward different at times. Yeah, like I've gotten Harwood or Hayward or a um, bunch of different names. Bunch of different Harward. names. Yeah. So my friend Kendall is going to share his story. He's 25. He's a gay Latter-day Saint. He's um, grew up here in Salt Lake City, served a mission to Ghana, West Africa, a country I'd love to go to at one time. Thanks for all the people who are lives are better off because of your service in Ghana. Kendall works for a credit union in, the, in kind of the finance area of a credit union here in Salt Lake and is also at Salt Lake Community College in communications. But like so many of um, the LGBTQ Latter-day Saints that I visit with, especially those that are in their 20s, they don't exactly know how their story is going to play out. Um, and so that's great. I think these podcasts are helpful for those of you that don't quite know how your story is going to play out either. And you're at the intersection of having a deep testimony of of the restored gospel, gospel principles, seeing great love and, and felt great joy being in the church and serving. And also you're gay and you're trying to figure out how that works going forward. And so that's kind of what this podcast I think will be. Um, I'll just to, you know, we'll probably get to um, Kendall's story. He did date a man for eight months and that end relationship ended and he kind of went through the process with his bishop and stake president and they were very loving as he's returning to church in his singles ward. Um, but he also probably feels like that door is still open to marry a man and to raise a family. And um, every story is important, listeners, and I just, you know, want to give everybody a chance to share their story. And and I think, you know, listeners, I invite people to stay in the church, but also let people self-determine their best path forward and encourage them to receive personal revelation for what that path is and just uh, and just leave any judging at the feet of our Savior and wrap my arms around everybody as they're doing the best they can in their lives. So that's the way I kind of set up these podcasts. Is that okay, Kendall? That's awesome. Um, so talk about just, if I'd met you, were you out to anybody before your mission? No, I wasn't out at all. I was very much, um, grew up in the closet um, most of my life. Um, I grew up with a lot of female influences in my life. So I grew up with my two older sisters and um, my mom and um most of my friends growing up my childhood were female. Um, I had a couple of guy friends. Um, they were like my really close guy friends. So I'd always like have one through elementary and junior high and high school. I'd have like 
one guy who was like my really close friend because I just felt like I, I had to stick to one um, guy friend. And it, it was just kind of, kind of difficult and different for me um, just because I was, as a kid, um, it was kind of challenging, you know. Um, I had a great growing up experience with my parents and growing up in the gospel. Um, as a kid, uh, I had a friend um, who lived near me and he and I would hang out and we would um, do all these bets and dares. And, you know, we had these two big pine trees back in my home in West Valley. There's huge pine trees that we would love to try and climb and see who could get, climb the highest and everything like that. And we even jumped off my balcony <laughs> when I was like in second grade and I actually broke my heel because of it. Wow. Yeah. Um, because I wanted to, I wanted to be, you know, close to him. I wanted to feel like we were connected, that we, that I felt like I belonged um, to be his friend. And sometimes we'd have sleepovers and we would watch what's called like WWE wrestling. And it's kind of like that um, dramatic wrestling and lots of drama and all that kind of fun stuff. And we would fake wrestle and all that fun stuff and just have a really good time. Um, some, some of the times um, when I was um, with him, we did like these role plays where we went into a dark room and um, one of us would be a man and one of us would be a woman kind of scenario type of situations. And I don't necessarily remember anything bad happening with that or anything going on. Um, as we continued to have sleepovers um, with this, with this friend at the time, he, there was um, particular bets that he would, he'd say, if you lose at this game, I have, you have to do something for me. And if I won, then I had to do, then he could do something for me kind of a thing. And I just remember like things were just kind of getting more uncomfortable for me. And um, I was like, I don't know what's really going on because I was about like 11, 12 at the time, like pretty young. I don't really know what, what sexuality is. I don't know what anything really, really is. I'm just a kid, you know, just trying to have fun and hang out with my friend. And um, these things started to progress kind of, rather quickly. Um, and I stayed over at his, at his house one night and some things happened to me that were very deep and kind of scary for me to really express what happened. And I was terrified because I thought maybe I just ruined my whole kind of life plan at like 12 years old because <laughs> of what happened. Um, I didn't tell anybody what happened. Um, with that particular friend um, because we grew, we kind of grew apart and, you know, I'd, I'd run into him sometimes. I never really blamed him for anything that happened or anything like that. Um, I didn't tell my parents or even my Bishop until I was 18 before I um, went to serve because I, I just was so afraid that I wasn't going to be able to go. And, I may not be able to, that I wasn't even worthy to go because of what happened. And as you get older, you start remembering what happened. And, you know, you're thinking to yourself, like, am I even, you know, pure to go out now because of what happened? And all these thoughts just start racing through my head of how do I even know if I can even do this? How can I, you know, even be in the church like at like 14, 15 years old? I'm starting to kind of have this like, 
freak out moment as I'm getting older and remembering what happened to me as a kid. Um, but as I've, you know, gotten older and um, after that kind of experience happened in my life, um, we kind of drew apart, as I said earlier. And that's when I first got like kind of exposed to pornography was at around the age of 12 to 13. So I was fairly young when pornography entered into my life. Um, I personally thought to myself that I was the only one kind of going through pornography struggles. Um, and particularly that it wasn't with women, it was looking at guys and I didn't know what that even meant um, until you started getting older. And then I thought about what happened to me when I was little, when I was about 14 and 15 and things started coming back more. And then was it experimentation? Was it, was I uncomfortable? Cause I didn't stop anything. I did. I just let it kind of happen. And so it just kind of like, that's that battle between my inner head was like, is it my fault that this happened or was it just circumstantial? You know, were we just, you know, being kids, you know? And so that was kind of the big struggle for me. And especially because now I'm looking into pornography at, you know, age 12. And that's become a huge problem in my life starting from 12 going onward. And I don't, I can't tell anybody, you know, I don't want to tell anybody about it. Um, I have a really great relationship with my family and my parents. So my parents knew I was struggling with pornography and they, they were really loving and supporting, but they also wanted me to, you know, to get, to get clean and to, you know, so I can have that life, but they didn't know what happened when I was a kid because I just didn't want to talk about something that was kind of traumatic for me and kind of still is a little bit hard when I bring it up at times, but going throughout junior high and high school, I, I tried to date women. I tried to have relationships with women. Um, I remember specifically when I was about 14 going on to 15, I told the girl I was dating that I was into men. And I told uh, my best friend from junior high that I was into men, that I was looking into men and my parents, they were like, no, you can't, you can't say that. Like, that's going to ruin like your whole life. Like you cannot like talk about that kind of stuff. Like people are going to start, you know, my parents were just afraid because it's just something, you know, you don't want it to kind of consume your life and people to make fun of you um, as you grow up. So that kind of just pushed, you know, more shame and more kind of guilt down into my body as I just kind of was like, okay, I'm going to go into high school. I'm just going to do what I can. I'm going to be involved so I was in choir and theater and band. I loved the arts. I had so much fun. And I kind of channeled all my emotions into that. I kind of just kind of pushed everything down and just tried to keep it in a little box, as I call it, and not really think about it. Just try to be a normal high school kid who's trying to hopefully serve a mission. That's a really vulnerable segment, Kendall. Um Thanks for your courage to share all that stuff. Um, it helps other people know they're not alone and that similar experiences may have happened to some of our listeners. It takes courage to be that vulnerable. Um, so thanks. Talk about, um, you sort of the courage to talk to your bishop at age 18 about, yeah. I sense the pornography in this experience. Um, 
Was that a positive experience for you, neutral, a negative experience? Um, it was a very positive experience for me because um, my bishop, um, he's a big Ute fan, so I'll call him like my bishop Ute or something. He was such a big Ute, um, Utah Ute fan. He was such a big fan. And he was such a great guy because he was my bishop about, I believe I was 12 when he came in. So he was probably between 12 to 18, like right in the critical years of my development stage of what's going on with me, why am I struggling? And he always made me feel loved and accepted. Um, every activity, you know, he made sure to say hi to every single person, every single person and, and thank them for being there. And if it wasn't for him, you know, I don't know if I would show up to some of those activities because I knew, you know, sometimes I was like, I don't want to be a bother. I don't want to, you know, bother him with my burdens or anything. But he would always, you know, come up and say, Kendall, how are you? Thanks for coming today. Or thanks for being here. And that just made every trip worth it. Every experience, you know, and not just him, but my other leaders were also super supportive and super kind. Um, and I started telling my bishop, I believe at the age of like 15 or 16, I was struggling with pornography. And he was like, okay. He's like, young men do, you know, <laughs> he's like, young men do. It's okay. He's like, well, let's just work on it. You know, you know, he was like, it's fine. It's not a big deal. Um, when I was 18 and I was starting to prepare for my mission, that's when things were kind of scary because he knew I was looking at pornography, but he didn't know that it was with, with, with men or that what had happened when I was a kid. And, he could tell something was on my mind and he said, what's, what's going on? And so I told him what had happened. And, you know, he told me that everything was okay, that um, we were just kids. Um, it didn't change, you know, anything about who I was or the fact that, you know, with my, you know, going to serve a mission. Um, but he did encourage me to tell my parents that night after we had met, um, to have that interview. So I went home and I sat down with my parents and I said, Hey, I have got something to tell you. Cause I been keeping it in for so long and I'm not usually one to hold withheld things from my parents because we've been so open and vulnerable throughout my entire life. So this is kind of like the big secret of my life of what happened when I was a kid. It was like the big thing that scared me. And so, you know, my parents were just, crushed. You know, they were crushed that it happened. They felt crushed that I didn't tell them, you know, it was just, it was a very hard time because to them, they felt like it was more of, um, not experimentation, but more of an abuse situation. Um, a grooming situation where things progressed the term grooming, like when things progress, sorry, I should have explained what that meant, but yeah, that's where the term grooming comes from. It's like things slowly start progressing into it becomes like a hiding, a heightened point when things happen. And so that was really, you know, a tough moment, but also a really beautiful moment for us before I went on my mission was that we were able to talk about that and kind of move forward before I left on my mission, which actually was like five days after high school. It was really fast because this was with the mission age change back. Was that, I think that was in October when that happened. And we were actually at general conference because I was part of the choir of the Taylorsville, Utah central stick. I believe it was. That's cool. Yeah. So I was able to be part of that choir and it was such a really neat experience. And I remember, I remember we were, we had to go up super early to, cause we were the afternoon session 
And that's when they announced the mission age change and everyone's freaking out and people are getting interviewed and it's like this huge thing. And that's when everyone's like, we're going to go, we're going to go. Like everyone's going to go. And it was just like this really cool experience. And that's when I was like, okay, I got to start preparing. I really got to get it together is what I told myself. I said, you know, I got to stop looking at pornography. I got to really get myself together because I can't, I can't have that before I go. Like that's not going to work anytime, you know? So for me, that's what I kind of started working towards my mission papers. And I started to really feel my savior's love. And I just stopped. I just decided to stop. That was it. I guess I was, I know it kind of went cold turkey. I said, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to focus on my problems anymore. I'm just not going to look at it, which in a way I'm really grateful for. And in some ways I kind of lost my self care because I kind of just pushed it all away. And I said, I'm just going to focus solely on what I need to do, what to get out. I'm just going to focus and I'm not going to focus on what's causing the underlying issues in my life. I'm just going to serve and I'm going to, I'm going to get out there. So when I got my call, I was like, yes, I get to leave right after high school. I don't have to think about any of this. This is great. This is exciting. And it was in Africa too. So it was like the best of both worlds. So it was awesome. Thanks. Thanks for that segment too, Kendall. Thanks for your courage to talk to your bishop. I mean, there's kind of culturally, I think your bishop, even as you opened up about pornography, it's a sin, but, you know, he's assuming you're looking at straight porn and he's just sort of aware that a lot of the young men might be doing that. Right. And But to sort of have to let him know the full story, this is gay porn, Bishop, which obviously means something about me. And I've right. had this experience that I really have no context to understand. And I, I just think it's a beautiful ministering moment that he loved you and he, he helped you. Um, and he understood that situation early in your life for what it was. I think, you know, I, I'm not a bishop, <laughs> but I think it's helpful to look at intent and what your motives were back then and what your understanding was and your age. And and I think he showed the right, I think he treated you like Jesus would because I think he knew your heart was not, you didn't wake up one day and said, what can I do to disappoint God? Um and I think it sounds like you were in a bit of a groomed situation. And and I just recognized the nuance that he had and the understanding and and didn't create a, a lot of hurdles that kept you from serving that mission and all the people you blessed in West Africa. It's a credit to all of you. It's a credit to the atonement of Jesus Christ. It's a credit to your bishop. It's a credit to you. And, and it's a credit to you to go talk to your parents. And I bet part of their... The difficulty of that is they would have loved to have helped you earlier. They didn't know you were carrying this all this time. And us as parents, we want to create a safe environment. And I think your parents had, but this was just a, such a difficult subject. You didn't want to burden your parents. Um, some would, and I've written about this in the book that, you know, some, you know, some people that are survivors, I like to call you survivors versus victims, but either way is fine. Survivors of a sexual abuse situation, you know, some think that's the reason your your sexual orientation is gay. Um, and, you know, so do you have any thoughts on that if there's listeners that are wondering 
right now if, well, you're looking at gay porn and identify as gay because you have this experience or or if you, if this is diff, just any thoughts you want to share on that subject? Yeah, I mean, for me, I actually thought that. I thought because of, you know, if I stopped looking at pornography, then I would be fixed. If I just went on my mission and I stopped looking at pornography, maybe things will turn out differently. I think I was telling myself this mind that things are going to be okay. That I don't, you know, it's just a, it's just a phase in my life. It's not going to be permanent. It's not going to be lasting to me. And what really kind of started to shake my foundation on that was actually on my mission. Um, and, you know, I'd stopped looking at pornography. I was serving the people of Ghana and, it was in my second area. My longest companion had just left. So we were at the, what's the, the mission home, and we were called supply elders. So we would um, ship supplies out to the missionaries. So we, we would package them up and get them ready to be shipped out. You know, Book of Mormons, pamphlets, pots, pans, anything you could think of. So that was part of my job was to get that all organized. And the new companion that came in, um, it was so different for me. I've never experienced a feeling that I've had like this before. It wasn't just an attraction on like a physical level, but it was like on an emotional, deep level. Um, I remember when I was having a hard time, he wrote me these little blue sticky notes and he put, God loves you. And he put, elder so-and-so loves you. And I kept them up on my wall um, because it meant so much to me. And I grew like this new level of attraction that I never felt in my entire life. And that terrified me so much because I was like, I can't have this. I thought I'd fix that at home. I took care of pornography. I went on, I'm on my mission right now. Like this is not okay. I, I was like freaking out eternally because I was like, what's going to happen to me? Like, I don't, I don't want this to be happening. And I kind of, you know, early on didn't want my mission president to be worried about me. I was struggling my first little bit and he he came up to my area and my trainer said, you know, you know, other Harvard struggling and my mission president, you know, he gave me kind of some tough love. He said, you can suck it up or you can go home. It's your choice. And um, that kind of experience of like, either do I stay or do I just go home? You know? And so I said, I'll stay, you know? So I thought to myself, I'll just stay. You know what? I'm going to not make my mission president worry about me. I'm going to be a really good missionary. I'm going to do the best that I can. And it was difficult realizing that now I'm starting to have these feelings come up that I thought were going to go away. They're deeper feelings that I never felt before in my life. And what was I going to do? You know, do I tell my mission president about that or do I just keep it hidden? And that started kind of a affecting, you know, my teaching because I wasn't, you know, fully there all the time. And I can just tell I was off. I was just not feeling it. And it was scary for me, just absolutely terrifying. And I remember telling my mission president, um, after I got let, I got transferred out of that because it was only six weeks, which was probably for the best <laughs> looking back. And, he got a new companion and we would run into each other and I would feel really hurt because 
he was really close with this new companion. And I could tell that they were just getting along really well. And I was really hurt because I felt to me that we were so close. I thought I was kind of was opening up to him a little bit. And I was like this deeper emotional connection. And I was like, why would he, you know, open up to this other person? And I've never felt feelings of jealousy like that before. And that kind of just like freaked me out even more because I'm like, I'm not supposed to be feeling this. Like I'm not supposed to be feeling attraction, emotional attraction, and even feelings of jealousy with this companion. Like what's going on? And during one of my mission present interviews, this is when I told my mission present, I said, I'm having trouble keeping clean thoughts is how I put it. And then he asked, he said, are you looking at pornography? You know, cause you have to ask that. And I said, no, I'm not looking at pornography. I'm doing great. You know, I had issues in the past that was taken care of. I'm just having, you know, some problems with keeping clean thoughts. And I, I really honestly wanted to tell him that I was attracted to men and that it was getting pretty serious, but I didn't want to disappoint. And that's something that's been really big, hard for me because I don't want to disappoint my family. I didn't want to disappoint God. And I certainly didn't want to get sent home early because what does that mean for me? What are people going to think if I got sent home early because I was attracted to men? Like, what does that say about me? So I was terrified. And so I just didn't say anything to him. I just didn't say anything about that. And I had a fear, especially in that area, because there was an emergency transfer and I had to get two new companions. And it was just kind of all of a sudden in my third area. And missionaries, you know, especially men missionaries, they're just crazy. They're just different. Um, And especially on my mission, I just tried to keep a really clean mind and pure heart. At least I tried. But missionaries would walk around naked all the time after they shower. They would just make some jokes and things like that. And they nobody knew, you know, they were mostly either they were either straight or they just wanted to have some fun. And so for me, it made me very uncomfortable. And one of my companions in my third area during that emergency transfer would walk around naked all the time. And, you know, and he was like, why are you looking at me like that? And I said, nothing, no reason. I'm not looking at you. Like, I'm fine. Everything's fine. I'm just, you know, trying to focus on the work. I'm just trying to focus. I'm just trying to finish. That's what I'm telling my mind. I just want to get through my mission. I want to be a good missionary. And I remember specifically one night that he was talking with the other companion and he said, I think Elder Harwood's gay. And those words like Elder Harwood is gay terrified me because I never even said that to myself. And And hearing that conversation terrified me because now I'm thinking, my mission president's going to know what am I going to say? How am I going to even respond to this? And so I was just terrified. I didn't even want to confront my companions. I even heard that conversation. I just said, yeah, I just went into my room and I just cried. And I just thought, I don't know what's going to happen to me. And we had mission president interviews that transfer. That's what was really hard too. Cause it was, I knew we were going to have an interview. So I, I sat in the mission home and I was terrified I was like, this is going to be the moment. I'm going to have to say something. And he met with the other two companions. And then he called me in. He asked about the work. And I told him it was good. Asked about my companions. And I said, we're having some issues. (laughs) And that was about it. He never brought it up to me. So I don't even know if he knew, if if my companions ever told him 
or anything. I was just so terrified. I just didn't say a word. And then I felt so much guilt and then shame washed over me after that. And that followed me throughout the rest of my mission was just this bunch of shame. Like you're supposed to be honest and authentic and you couldn't even tell them in this moment, this critical moment. And so I was like, what's wrong with me? Like, why am I, why can't I get it together? And so that was really difficult for me. And so I, again, just try to push it, all my feelings back in the box. I said, you know what? It's okay. We made mistakes. You didn't tell them. That's okay. You can finish out your mission. Just finish strong. Just finish as best you can. So I just tried to finish the best I could. And I thought, okay, who's back in my life? That's a female that I could try to date. And so I messaged, I emailed one of my friends from high school and I said, Hey, we should go on a date when we get back. You know, like this is like my last transfer and I'm already thinking of home plans. Like, what am I going to do? And I don't want to think about this other part of me. And going back to that, that thing of self-care is I just have never really been taking care of myself. So I'm just pushing it deep, deeper and deeper and deeper, even though I knew this isn't going to go away in my life. It's, it's there. It's not going away because it wasn't just him and it happened with other members and I would start feeling these things and it just would keep coming up, coming up, coming up. And I kept trying to push it and push it. And so that's when I emailed her and I was like, Hey, let's go on a date. Like really I need to, you know, I need something to fix this, you know, to fix me. And she was like, focus, like, don't even, don't even talk up to, don't talk to me. We'll talk when we get, when you get home. And so that was the plan was to date her when I got home for my mission. It's a pretty brave segment. That's segment number three. It's pretty brave, Kendall. Um, really helpful segment. I just sort of am drawn in and better able to walk in your shoes when I hear the complexities of your, what you're navigating. And and this, as you flew to Africa, this hope that, and you had done everything you were asked to do. And, and hope is such a great word that this was a phase, you're going to be straight, be able to focus on the work, you're going to, and then you get in a situation where you recognize that, you know, this, I'm still feeling these same feelings, even though I'm set apart as a missionary, I'm clean, I've done everything. And that can be pretty, that can put you in a pretty dark spot. Some would even be in a suicidal spot thinking this is just, I have so much shame and there's so lack of hope. And, you know, I think part of the white handbook is being modest. So I think, um, Maybe that's why that's in the white handbook because <laughs> sisters so. and elders are supposed to be pretty modest. And I can't, I read the white handbook in a long time. I don't even know what's called the white handbook. Um, but that's a really tough situation where, you know, listener sexual orientation is just, I believe, is generally hardwired in you. And so very appropriate for you, just like if you were you know, rooming with a bunch of sister missionaries, if you were straight, um, to have normal thoughts that are kind of hardwired part of your sexual orientation. I've always thought that we should de-shame thoughts to some extent because it's really hard to c control your thoughts. Um, and even trying not to have thoughts creates thoughts in the space you're not trying to have thoughts. And it may be take a lifetime to navigate your thoughts, but obviously actions that result from your thoughts and behavior the results from your thought is in our control, but sometimes we get so down on ourselves just because of our thoughts that it creates so much shame that it's harder than to just make our way forward the way we want to. Um, 
gosh, I know your older self would love to go back to Ghana and talk to you right now. Oh, yes, yeah. I just think you did an incredible job and an incredibly complicated. There's no section of the white manual that it talks about how to navigate what you were navigating. I sense your heart is in the right place. I sense you wanted to do the right thing. I sense you didn't want to have feelings towards companions and just the dark spot that brought you in potentially. And you finished two years, I think. Yeah, I did. I mean, that, I mean, on your darkest days, Kendall, you've got to go back. And this is me talking to listeners. You finished two years. You served. You served in a country that's very different in the United States um, and a, a country that needs to feel the love of our heavenly parents and the Savior. And I would guess, knowing your good heart, there's a lot of people whose lives in Ghana are better. And I would think a lot of missionaries' lives are better because of the Christ-like attributes and preach my gospel, chapter 6, if it's still in that chapter, that you brought. Um, and so just, you know... That's my feeling. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And I think our heavenly parents are grateful for all that you did. Most stories, actually, that I've listened to of gay um, people serving their mission, they generally don't fall in love. And you haven't quite used the vocabulary, but they generally, and I just recognize every story is different. Um, And so maybe it's good for somebody that's preparing to serve, recognize that could happen. They could have romantic or emotional feelings. And maybe hearing your story helps them know that that could be something in their future. So they can kind of navigate it now and just know that, okay, I'm going to go serve a mission. I don't need to be out to anybody um, necessarily, but I just know this may happen and this is how I'll navigate it. I may just tell the mission president at some point I need to transfer and without saying why, if that missionary feels like. And I don't know. I just think hearing your story does help others that are going to serve to know that this could be part of my story so I can prepare now. And, I, and I'm doing too much talking here, but I, I've always encouraged those of you that are LGBTQ to serve missions, even if you don't quite know your future after your mission. I've always felt the foundation of your mission um, and the lives you bless are just it's worth it. And that's generally the experience that I'm hearing. And and don't have too much anxiety about all these situations like Kendall's story. Don't, this may or may not happen to you, but don't try not to worry about what you're going to do in situations until you actually get in a situation. And then I think the spirit will help you know how to do that. And so anxiety is about the future. And I would just be have peace that you'll know how to navigate this. And a story like Kendall will actually help you. So anything you want to add about your mission experience? I'd love what you just said there because I felt like if I heard her in my story any younger, you know, back on my mission, I would at least know I'm not alone. I just felt so alone in that moment. And like, I must be the only gay missionary right here in, in Ghana or in the world, I just felt like I'm this really bad missionary. And that's something that's really hard for me. Even when people say you've served well, it's it's still hard because you know, I'm super self-critical of that experience and to have those feelings. Um, but I really tried to love the Savior, like the Savior would and um, help people you know, draw closer to Christ. 
So that's what I try to take away is that I did try. <laughs> I did try to do my best. Um, thanks for your service. And I, there's no question in my mind that's what you've been trying to do your whole life. And, um, and I just... It's just in a, it's a really complicated situation. It's just, the only thing I can frame it up is that it's like a straight missionary rooming, having two, I mean, just what I said before, it would be logical to have those thoughts and feelings. And this is just the way you're wired and it would be very logical to feel this way. And I just think you navigated the best you had. And so you have hope as you're leaving your mission. You want to do what's right. And so you reach out to this gal. Right. Just talk about, and eventually you started to date men. Just talk a little bit about that journey. Yeah, this is um, kind of a tough part in my life. Um, because before I left, I wrote a letter to myself. We did it in our theater class. That said, you know, in five years, this is a letter of five years in the fu in the future, so we wrote like, dear, you know, future self. And I said, I'm going to major in, in, in this. I'm going to be married to a woman. I'm going to be a super active Latter-day Saint. Like I had it all planned out in my mind. I was like, I'm ready. So coming home was kind of terrifying because I was like, I felt so much, not just guilt, but shame for what had happened. And I felt like I'm not even a really a good missionary or even a good person. And so as I came home, I was like, well, let me try. Let me just put the feelings back down. Let me, so I even put, you know, self-care again was not really there at all. I was like, I'm going to, you know, just focus on doing what I need to do, at least get part of my five-year plan to be accurate. Let me, let me do something right. <laughs> and so I went home um, and I messaged her. Um, we started to date before I went up to, Utah State, um, I decided in the back of my mind, I was like, I'm going to you know, buy the souvenir for the, my future wife. So I bought some earrings and a purse because I thought that's the person I'm going to marry when I give it to them. Even though I had all these feelings, I was trying so hard not to have these feelings. <laughs> so I was like, let me do this and let me get this. And um, it's part of my habit to overcompensate for my feelings because I get nervous that if my feelings aren't valid or if they're they're wrong, that someone could leave. And so I try to like get things or do things for others. Um, and so I gave her the earrings and I said, you know, I'll be back. You know, I'm going to school. You know, I'll see you at winter break. So I go up to Utah State and it's the same. My feelings for men have not changed whatsoever. They're getting stronger. And I'm like, well, this is not good at all. I was like, oh man, I'm supposed to be dating this woman back from, from Salt Lake. You know, we're still kind of doing a long distance thing and we don't really talk that much that fall. And that's really my fault because I'm going through so much that I kind of just pushed her out of my life kind of until winter break. I come home, we meet up and she says, it's not going to work. We're not going to do this anymore. And she said, I don't think you really know me. I don't think you really know who I am. And that was kind of really crushing because we've been friends forever. But it was true. I didn't know her. I didn't care about her on, on that deeper level. That emotional level to be committed and to have a relationship. 
to have a marriage. And that was why I was just, I was devastated. I was just sobbing on the way home because I was like, man, I just lost my chance. I lost it. And we tried again in, in 2018. She messaged me back in February and we went to um, the open house for the Jordan River Temple when they did the rededication. And I told her, because we were looking at all the temples, I said, you know, you get to pick whatever temple you want to go in if you get married, you know, like that's your choice. And in her mind, she was thinking like me and her. And I was just trying to tell her like, you get to pick because you're, you know, I'm all about um, female inclusion and and everything like that. So I was like, you, you should pick, like that's your choice. And so when we get into my car and we go for a drive, she starts talking about like, the temple and about us. And I'm like, we, you know, we ended the, you know, you ended things and I'm going through all these feelings and I haven't even told her that I'm going through these feelings. And I say, it's just not going to work. So this is me telling her now it's not going to work. And I wish I would have told her then why it wasn't going to work in that moment. And she was invited to come over for dinner, but then she, you know, she said no. And she gave me back the earrings and I remember just sitting at my dinner table and I just sobbed because that was like my only chance at probably marrying a woman in my mind. That was it. That was my, my chance. And I feel like I blew it. And I couldn't even tell her that I was into men. I couldn't even say the words I'm gay at the time. I couldn't even say any of that. It was just too difficult for me. And so I went back up to Utah State in the fall of 2018 and I just said, this is going to be really different for me. I, you know, I tried dating one other woman. We went on a couple of dates and I said, I can't do this. This isn't going to be right. And this is kind of the start of me trying to be authentic and fully starting to come out. I had a calling in my singles ward and I told my bishop, I need to be released. I can't, I can't do it. I'm not, I'm not worthy to, to have this calling. He's like, okay, let's, let's talk. So I explain everything to him and he says, well, we, we should probably meet with the stake president. And so then I go and meet with the stake president and I share my, my story. And he said, we may need to have like either a ward council or a stake um, disciplinary council. Um, and he said, you know, he was very loving and very kind, but he also looked me in the eyes and he said, you're risking your future wife and kids. Like you're risking it all by these behaviors. And again, the, like the term, you know, gay or who, you know, who I was to have even come to me. I just didn't know. I didn't really want to believe that that, that was me. Even though I had all these experiences in these moments, I still kept pushing it down and I didn't really take care of myself. And that was really difficult for me. And then I, um, it ended up being a ward disciplinary council is what I en they ended up doing. So um, the two options would be um, formal probation or disfellowship, um, depending on what the outcome was going to be. And I was very terrified. I got the letter, you know, saying you're invited to the council. And then I invited my parents up to come, you know, because they wanted to be there. And they're just emotional very distraught, loving parents as they are. And I'm sitting there and I'm pretty calm. I'm pretty, 
neutral as you could say. And, you know, we go, I go in there, I share everything. And then the outcome was formal probation, which basically, you know, uh, means I still can participate in everything, but there's a lot of things I need to do to correct my actions. And after that disciplinary council, I kind of left feeling more confused about the church that I had in my life. I tried to be so faithful. And that was the time where I was like, I don't understand why somebody wants me to, to change at this point. Cause I feel like, I don't feel like I can change, you know, who I am. I'm just trying to be honest about where I've been. And this is me trying to kind of come out. And to them at the very end, they said, what's, what is it going to take to change? What is it going to take for you to change? And this is where I felt guilty because it's kind of back to the mission president experience. It's like, I kind of just pushed my way through it because I don't want to say, I don't know if it's, it really is. I don't really feel like it is going to change. I feel like this is, you know, me. And that was really, really difficult because even my dad saw my face and he knew he was like, something's different. He's like, I don't know what's going on, but I can tell like after that meeting, you don't look the same. You're not feeling the same as we are. Like you don't seem like you're repenting. And I don't, and I feel bad saying this, but I don't feel like I was in the moment. I think I was just trying to be honest and here was who was I am. And I think this is going to be me. This is who I am. You know, starting to come out in that way. And that was really difficult. After that, that was when I kind of had some dark periods where I kind of just was super angry with the church for a minute because I was like, they can't love me or they can't understand what I'm going through. And I just felt really hurt. And I felt really distanced from God for the first time in my life. I even stopped praying for the first time in my life. And that was the biggest mistake I've ever done. I had a friend um, from Utah State who who just invited me to her church. She said, just come with me to church. You know, it's not your church, just come. Um, and it's a non-denominational Christian church. So it's all about um, your relationship with the Savior. And that was such a beautiful, humbling experience that I never really left my faith. I was just struggling with my faith. And that would become uh, a bigger struggle throughout my life. Um, but that I always had my Heavenly Father, my Savior, that they always loved me, that they were always there for me. After that experience, I came, I came back to Salt Lake just to save up some money and go, go to Slick. I felt like I could you know, save lots of money and everything like that. And then I came out to my parents and that, that I said, I'm gay. And that shocked my mom, shocked my dad a little bit. They were super loving. They would never kick me out or anything like that. So I feel privileged in a way because I didn't, you know, get any hurt or anything like that or, or get kicked out. Or, but, my, but my parents were confused because I dated women. And they didn't really know about what happened on my mission with those experiences and those feelings. And they were kind of confused as to why, then why did I even go to the council? Like, why, what, what's the point? And so that was kind of a hard point for us to start talking about who I was and how do I fit in the church? And that's when this 
uh, huge discussion we had to kind of work out between my mom and my dad and how do we respect and love each other and how do I feel like I can still stay in the church? It's another brave segment, um, just going through the complexities of your life and navigating a disciplinary council, being honest. And um, there's a lot of integrity in your story. <laughs> you may not like that word, but <laughs> because it's been hard to be honest, but I sense you've always wanted to do the right thing and you've always been a man of integrity and always are. And you've been willing to have really hard discussions with your parents. And it takes a while to do that and with your bishops and just you've done a really good job and there's so much shame about not having these conversations i've always felt like you know these kind of conversations take the shame out of your life and so i think shame is one of the satan's greatest tools to separate us from our heavenly parents and their love and i'm i love that you've kept throughout this whole thing you've kept the savior in your life and our heavenly parents in your life and I've always kind of known him, maybe I've always felt this way, that you're always within their love. Talk about, I want to talk about the self-care segment. We've maybe only got time for two more segments, but you've you've alluded to a few times that you've just, even the pornography, you briefly mentioned that it was probably coping with something that was, it was still pornography. You still mm-hmm. recognize it was a sin, but you sort of recognize it was a coping mechanism, those stuff going down deeper down that you're just never getting the chance to address because you're helping everybody else feel so good and so okay about you and not wanting to bother them with your life that you're you're not really taking care of yourself. And so and this is a really good segment, I think, for listeners that perhaps need to to say, okay, I really need to take care of myself right now. So talk about that, Kendall. You know, and I feel like self-care is such an important word because to me, when I thought about self-care, I kind of thought about it being selfish because growing up in the church, you don't want to be selfish. You don't want to be a selfish person. You always want to be Christ-like and giving and charitable. You want to help others the best you can. So to me, when I thought of self-care, I thought of it as that's more of a selfish thing. Like, you can do some things for yourself, but you shouldn't be doing a lot of, you know, taking care of yourself. I think that's where the big disconnect is sometimes is that self-care is different than being selfish. And I think self-care is making sure that you are aware of your emotions. My mom taught me what's called mindfulness and letting the emotion pass through you, acknowledging the emotion, saying, okay, I'm feeling sad. Okay, that's that's okay. It's okay to be sad in this moment. And then let it wash through you. And then just really letting it sink in and then let it go. Because if you ignore those emotions, that's when it gets buried and then it's going to come back, bounce back and bounce back. And eventually it's just going to finally explode. And you're not going to be able to understand like, why can't I be a good person? It starts coming back to your self-worth. And so for me, self-care has been kind of the big overall theme of my life is to really start taking care of myself. Cause what I did when I was in my relationship with my ex, I started giving more than more to him than I was giving to myself. And I needed to make sure that I was okay financially, spiritually, mentally. And I was just, again, trying not to be a burden to anybody, even to my ex. And I was like, you know, 
we talked about so many big, deep things about having kids and getting married and things that I thought I could probably do this for the first time in my life. And yet I'm not taking care of myself. And so it finally took when he broke up with me in December, that kind of shattered everything because I lost my ex. I lost my job and I didn't know where to go. I was so alone for the first time and so devastated. And I just hated Christmas. I was so devastated. I was like, I don't even want to do Christmas right now. It's, it's not the most wonderful time of the year for me in that moment. And, you know, to anybody who, who has felt that it, it's okay to feel, it's okay to feel like even during the best holidays, it's okay not to, to feel that great. Um, and after that, that's when I really was like, I need to go to a therapist. I really need to get, see what's going on. I realized I wasn't on the right medication for my anxiety or depression. And with the self-care, it was like my emotions were in a hamster wheel and they kept spinning and spinning and spinning. And even when you go to bed, my emotions were still spinning. So I couldn't get myself to kind of like calm down or like stop those thoughts, stop the, the self-harm in my head. It just kept, would keep going and going. So when my counselor told me that, I just, I just sobbed because I was like, that's me. Like all these things you're pointing out are what I've done. And so getting on that right medication and really talking to somebody about what are my unhealthy thoughts, especially when it comes to belonging, like it's really bad. I've thought some really bad things of like, I can't belong if I don't live 100% of the gospel. If I'm not a hundred and like 5% in, I'm not, you know, I can't be there. It's a very black and white mentality. And for me, that's something I've had to really start breaking down my walls and saying, it's okay to be gray. It's okay to be a cafeteria Mormon. I know it's not the most popular term, but it's okay because we're not all a hundred percent there. We all need the atonement of our savior, Jesus Christ. We all need stuff to approve audit. I think honestly taking that self-care has helped me develop a greater relationship with my savior. I'm so, you know, I sometimes, I hope you realize this has been a pretty hard road for you, but where you are at your age, 25, we could be having this discussion at 45 and you could have said, I spent the last five years, you know, practicing self-care and so that's, I don't want to knock anybody that's doing that for the first time at 45, um, but it, it's, re, it's, you're doing a lot of really good things, Kendall, to get yourself where you need to be. And I recognize we need Jesus and the atonement. And I mean, we need Jesus and a therapist. <laughs> and it's a sign of strength. I've been to a therapist twice in my life. And once as a YSA bishop, and I felt shame. I thought, well, if the YSAs knew I was seeing a therapist right now, <laughs> they would think less of me. And then I remember Elder Holland's talk where he talked about his own journey with his emotional health and his apostolic ministry wasn't diminished. In fact, I felt more love and empathy for him um, as he was vulnerable and real about, you know, the dark times that came into his life. So... Listeners, Kendall is to helping us, reminding us to be the very best we need to be. We need to take care of ourselves. And that's not being selfish. That's not meaning we're not strong. It just means 
to be our best self. We often need a therapist and medication to help us be our best self. In our Puritan culture, sometimes we think we can just kind of white knuckle it. And, and sometimes we're scared to address sort of what's down there that we need to deal with. And so we use coping mechanisms to not address it. And, and I think the path to full healing is to see and address and sort of resolve those so we can make our best path forward. I like the term cafeteria Mormon, by the way. I tweeted about that one weekend is because I don't, you know, listeners, I love Elder Ballard's talk about stay in the boat. But sometimes I think about that talk and I think, what can I do to make the boat more welcoming? And Kendall's used the term belonging. And uh, So what can I do to help other people feel like they belong in the boat so they can stay in the boat? Um, and I then want to look inward and I want to build a bigger boat. And I want people that are, we're all cafeteria Mormons, by the way, <laughs> um, because we all don't, or not all perfect in every aspect of living our religion. And so that's, I, I just think we need to create space for everybody where they are that wants to stay in the boat. Most that I meet with want to stay in the boat. They're just not sure people like them are welcome in the boat or belong in the boat because they're gay or because whatever's going on in their life or they don't match all the different checklists, sort of cultural requirements that sometimes we see and impose upon ourselves. So uh, part of this podcast in some ways is helping us build a bigger boat. And Kendall's doing that by sharing his story. And then we can sort of understand what we can do to create a feeling of belonging and that Kendall's a really good guy walking a really neat road. And we hear his story, just want to all put our arms around him and say, you've been walking a really complicated road. Talk about in this last segment, you've, you've recently kind of decided to go back to church and you've had a really good experience with your bishop and stake president. Talk about why you felt the desire to go back to church and, and just because you've had a good experience, any advice you have to leaders for, you know, people that are coming back or people that are LGBTQ? Thank you so much for that. Cause my journey back was, was kind of tough for me because after my discipline and, and moving back home and then being in a relationship, I didn't know if I was ever going to be back in the church completely or even want to be because I was dating and, and thinking about marrying a man. And I kind of just was like, well, I'm not really sure what to do with the church. And so when my ex broke up with me, that kind of really focused on not only my self-care, but my feelings. Why was I f- hurt by the church? And it wasn't the church's fault. It was more of like the cultural implications I put on myself and that I was feeling like I couldn't fit there. And that I felt like I couldn't be near the boat because I didn't want to be on the boat. I wanted to even just be near the boat. I wanted to be like the rope, like, hitting, like hey, I'm here. I'm still here. I don't have to be on the boat, but can I be like hold on to the rope and like still be part of it? Because as my therapist was talking about it, he's like, this is your whole life. And it really has been. I just can't throw it all away and say, well, that's not me anymore. That's not, it's not that simple. It's too much a part of who I am in order to do so. And so my parents were really helpful. Um, and we watched the chosen video series and that kind of helped start me understanding that people do make mistakes, even apostles and prophets, that there's nobody who's really perfect and that there's so much love that the Savior has. And so I went to my bishop and I said, hey, here's 
here's me. I've been on formal probation. I don't know if I fit in the church. I don't know what to do. And he was super loving. And he said, Kendall, I don't have all the answers. And I don't pretend I don't that I do, but I do love you and I care about you. And, you know, I have these resources that I can start giving you to where you can feel that you can belong. And he said, I want you to know that you're always welcome. No matter what, you're always welcome to church. You're always welcome to be here. He's like, I'd be more than happy to see you. And that just really just started that progression of, you know, my bishop knows me. He's, he's being my savior. He's finding me who's a lost sheep. Did he, did he know you were gay? He did. Mm-hmm. So he knew that part about you too. Yeah. I, I told him I was gay. I told him I had feelings on my mission. I told him I didn't tell anybody. I was pretty much spilling my whole guts. Like here, I was just like, here's me. So he saw the real you and said all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was he was super loving. And he said, I don't want you to think that your mission wasn't a success. Good. He said, you know, you did a really good job. Good. And that's, that's something that I'm still working through because I was like, wow. I just left feeling like so much love. I left feeling a lot of peace and a lot of comfort in my Heavenly Father. And I decided I should meet with the stake president too because after my bishop, I was like, well, let me make sure I'm going to go make sure because I'm on this repentance train as well because I was like, I want to go to church. I want to try and be better. And I met with him and the first things he said was like, you're an inspiration. You're divine. Divine timing is what he said. And I was like, what do you mean? And I was, I was late to the meeting and I was stressed and I was like, he's not going to meet with me. He's going to be so mad. And I guess there was an emergency appointment and it just so happened to work out. My late timing had to work out because I couldn't find the room. It's at the U Institute building and there's two floors and it's super complicated and I'm about in tears and don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) And he sat me down and we prayed and he was so loving and humble. He talked his, about his experience as a mission president and knowing somebody was gay and waiting for them to come out to him. And how he, he told me, he said, there's always going to be tension. You know, I can't take that tension away, but I can love you and support you. And how can I best help you navigate this journey? And that was really humbling to me because he knew it was a difficult space to be in. And he just wanted to love me. He just wanted to support me in any best way, whether that be either trying to date and find a man, whether that be being celibate and and coming back and me beginning a tough recommend again, he wanted to just say no matter what, he was there for me and that he loved me. And in that meeting, he said, you know, you're a great man. Do you believe that? And I said, I wish I do. I I wish I, I, I believed that because it was so, so hard. I put so much shame on being myself and, I felt like I I had done a, I felt like I didn't do any good in my life. And that's you know, through Satan, I think the shame was really getting to me was that I was trying so hard to come back. And he and he was telling me, you know, there's you've done too much damage. There's no hope for you. And through that through my stake president, 
I just felt so much love. And even when he he was praying, he said, he talked about how he was so humble. And he said, please bless like what Brother Harward has said today. Please bless that his words could come into my life and impact me. And I've never heard a leader say that before. And that really just surprised me that I was having an impact on him or his life. And he had, he was having more of the impact on me personally is what I felt. And so it was just kind of sh- overwhelming, overwhelming love. And he said, I hope I'm treating you like the Savior would. And I said, absolutely. I feel my Savior's love through my leaders. And that's been a huge, a huge reason why I've been working really hard to start making those those baby steps of of coming back. Even though it's hard and difficult, I'm still trying. That was a great segment. Um, I love your local leaders. I don't know if they'll listen to this. I don't know if they have time or they'll become aware of it. But these are ministering home runs that we all can do. They didn't sell out the doctrine of our church. You know the doctrine of our church. They didn't make that whole conversation about the doctrine of our church. Um, They made it about creating a feeling of love for you. Um, I love, you You said these pretty quickly, but they're incredibly powerful statements that your stake president said, how can I best help you navigating this journey? Reminds me of something Ben Chalati's bishop said to him is, how can I best serve you? as a gay Latter-day Saint, or what do I need to know to better minister to you? And the humility of that, sometimes priesthood leaders, we feel like we have to have all the answers, and but the humility to, um, then you said, I hope I'm talking to you like the Savior would. What a, just we could do the whole podcast with just that statement and how we should treat everybody, whether we're a parent or a neighbor, or priest leader, or whoever we are, I hope I'm talking to you like the Savior would, especially somebody that's in a position of trust. Um, and I love, I, there's a quote I sometimes share on the podcast that your bishop and stake president don't need to hear because <laughs> they're already doing it. In some matters, it's better to be intellectually uncertain rather than superficially sure. This will leave us a great deal to be certain about why maintaining the humility to learn. And that's a Michael Wilcox, one of my institute teachers. And I just love that because your stake president kind of said that about, I don't know every answer about this space and there's tension in this space, but I do know how to love you. And I do know how to trust you. And I do want you to feel like you're welcome here. And I just feel like back to the boat analogy, listeners, the temple to me there is a belief and behavior hurdle to feel, be able to go into the temple. and But in our congregations, there's just, there's not that belief or behavior hurdle. Everybody should feel love and welcome. And let's make a bigger boat. And, I, and there's a side of me that recognizes as they feel that at the congregation level, there will be more that want to go to the temple. Just like you're wondering right now, should I get my temple recommend back? Um and so I recognize, even though I don't think your bishop and stake president are loving you with an agenda to sort of get you a certain place, I think they're just loving you deserve to be loved. And because you need to feel that, because that's the way the Savior would make you feel. And 
So there's some really powerfully ministering experiences that are happening in your life by really thoughtful your parents and these priesthood leaders. And um, I just think the world needs more of love. And I love that you want, you know, we read this quote on the podcast quite a bit, but the more I hear the church talking, the more I recognize they're talking about belonging. So um, fitting in is about assessing a situation and becoming who you need to be in order to be accepted. And you've done that for your whole life. And that's a painful road to be on, as you know. Belonging, on the other hand, doesn't require us to change who we are. It requires us to be who we are. And you're doing that. And then then the responsibility is on us now, Kendall, to create a feeling of belonging, a place on the boat that a gay Latter-day Saint is welcome, that naturally is going to have a crush or two on a guy and a guy, just like our straight guys your age, you're going to have a crush on a girl and, and normalize sort of that part of your journey and and take the shame away from it. It's just the way you're wired, but you belong in the boat and we want you here and we're mature enough. We can deal with that. And we're not just going to see you by your sexuality and wonder if you're acting on it. We're just going to welcome you here and love you here and feel like you belong in the boat. So I've kind of gone off a little bit listeners. And if you're a regular listener, you've heard some of that. So maybe you fast forward it. But it just kind of gives you an idea, if you're not a regular listener, some of the things that I feel, because I love our church, and I love it because of the blessings of the restored doctrine that comes through the Prophet Joseph Smith that brings hope and healing. And I want more people to be able to connect with that. And sometimes it's the culture, and sometimes it's just different things that people don't feel like they're they're good enough for that, or they don't feel like they belong or welcome. And so they're not able to get those core blessings that it, that bless their lives, which you are, which you're doing, and partly because of leaders that are helping you. So I'll just turn it back to you for any final thoughts, Kendall. Well, thank you so much, um, Brother Osler, um, for just even having me on this podcast. I just feel really humbled. Um, the fact that I was able to even hear about your podcast through my mom and listening and even getting to share my story. So I want to thank you for all that you do to be an ally because I genuinely feel that you are an ally. And I think um, allyship, you know, it's all about love. It really is. It all comes back to loving like the savior would. That's really what it comes down to. And I would say to anybody who's really struggling to take it slow, like you said, really just take it slow, go slow because you don't want to leave out of anger or hate or, or bitterness. And that's what, before, that's why I was thinking of leaving, was out of anger. And I don't want to do that. I want to, you know, I want to stay the best that I can. And if things don't work out, then that's how it goes. But I want to stay and have that good relationship because there's a lot of good here. There's a lot of good here. And I would say to any LGBTQ plus Latter-day Saint or anybody who's listening to this that you are loved. You matter. I say this every morning. I say, I am perfect. I am whole. I am complete. Um, it's what my mom taught me when she was having a hard time starting her teaching. And so that's what I say to you, to all of you. You are perfect. You are whole. You are complete. And we belong, you know, even if it's difficult, the Savior loves us and wants us to be here. It's a great Great ending, Kendall. And um, if your parents are listening, you have raised a great son. 
this is a complicated road to have a gay son, but I think, you know, as Kendall's talked to me beforehand and and during this podcast, you have done a great job as parents. All parents aren't perfect. I'm not perfect, but I think this is one of your finest moments to hear your son talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the road he's on and the good he's done. And I love your stake prisoner bishop that I think was your recent stake president called your great missionary knew all about the experience and you deserve to feel that way and I love what you say to yourself every morning because I think it's what your heavenly parents would say to you so you're a great man Kendall you're not perfect I'm not perfect but you're walking a really complicated road you're alive you've gotten through probably some dark days that have involved some suicidal ideation we didn't get into that but most that have been in this space think about that because it's a way out and you've managed to sort of navigate that and your words to other LGBTQ Latter-day Saints are really helpful and your story is really helpful. So I mean, I'd love to give you a big hug and a bunch of listeners love to give you a big hug. You're doing a great job and you've got this great heart and this great spirit and this great understanding and a great love for everybody. And and you're going to continue to help and heal a lot of people, but you'll do it in a way now that's possible because you're out. And it'll be able to free over to connect to people because you've been vulnerable. They'll be vulnerable with you about what's really going on in their life. And that's happening, but that will happen even more. And I think you'll be a great source of strength to other people that need to rely on you. This isn't back to you not practicing self-care. It's back to you just You'll always help people because I think that's part of your earthly mission. So this is Kendall Harward, H-A-W-H-A-R-W-A-R-D, and Richard Osler signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. <laughs>